go. Today's passage is Mark 15, verses 33 through 47. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the youngest of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the, of the Lord. You can have a seat, and if you have a Bible, and I would encourage you to open it up to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in a lot of different places this morning. Um, most, if not all, of those are going to be up on the screen for you. Uh, but we will spend the majority of our time at the beginning of this week's sermon in, uh, in Mark 15. They're walking through the story of uh, our king's death. It's the death of the king. Uh, so before we dive into this, I want to encourage you, if you are a uh, lady in or at Trellview Church, uh, on... Um, February 24th, 10 a.m., we're having a women's equipping brunch. We'd love all of you to be there. Um, you can go into Church Center app and you can sign up via the sign up button and you'll see the women's brunch logo there and you can sign up there and, uh, and say you're coming. It's free. The only reason we're signing up is so we make sure we got enough brunch things for you. Um, so we'd love for all of you ladies to be there. Husbands, love and serve your wives on that day by uh, being whatever they need you to be so that they can be there instead of at home. And so, so that's that. Also, uh, as Pastor Brandon said earlier, uh, March 3rd is our next family member meeting. And if you are a member of Trellview Church, um, please plan to be at that meeting. There's uh, some significant things regarding the future direction life of our church that are going to be uh, things we chat, talk about, and look at uh, going forward uh, on that night. And it's really important that you're all there. So please make plans to be at our family member gathering at five o'clock on March 3rd if you're a member of Trellview. If you're not a member of Trellview, we would love for you to become a member of Trellview. Uh, the way you do that is by saying, hey, I want to become a member. Uh, and then we connect and walk through the process of you becoming a member, and at that meeting, you could actually be presented to our church to be received into 
into our membership. Um, and, uh, and so if you're interested, you're like, hey, no, let's lock arms with Trailview to see the glory of God throughout the world, through our area, uh, and partner with these people for your own spiritual health and well-being, then uh, we encourage you, reach out to me, fill out that Connect card, check the membership box if you want to, uh, and, and we'll get that process rolling before March 3rd. So, uh, so those are a few announcements. Uh, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, we're taking our time here. We're at the end. We're at the end of the book of Mark. We're at the end of the life of Jesus um, on earth. Uh, and last week we saw his crucifixion. This week we see the death of the king. We see the death of Jesus. So as we dive into this, let me ask you a question. Uh, maybe take a few moments and think back over your life and go, uh, what's the greatest act of love that you've ever received from someone? What's the greatest display or act of love that you have ever received from somebody else. There's a lot of stories that come to mind. Um, uh, I, oh, when you think about or watch those videos that stroll across and show um, like somebody who donated an organ to a loved one or a friend or a family member or a stranger, and you're just like, man, that's such an act of love that you would give your kidney so that this person could live. Maybe it's, it's stories like that that just kind of stir up in you. Maybe somebody gave you a gift. So Maybe somebody gave you a gift at some point in life and, uh, and it just stirred up in you this like real sense of love. Like, hey, maybe it was a gift you didn't ask for, but somehow they knew you wanted or would appreciate and they gave it to you. Uh, maybe uh, it, it's some form of affirmation. You can think back over a moment. I can think of a moment whenever, uh, uh, there's a few moments in my life uh, when my dad sat down with me like one-on-one and just said some very affirming words to me that were just so, uh, they just filled my heart with love. I remember when I was, uh, I think it was 17 or 18, uh, we were at youth camp and uh, at Mount Lebanon in Cedar Hill, not too far from here. Um, and uh, one of the nights after worship, uh, my dad was my youth pastor, which is an interesting experience. Um, and uh, we sat down in the golf cart outside of the cabin, and he just sat there and just told me how much he was proud of the young man that I was becoming. And that was a moment of like affirmation over me that just flooded my heart with this sense of like love. Um, maybe you have a moment like that. Now, maybe somebody showed you a, an act of physical affection, like gave you a hug when you were just really struggling or hurting. Um, maybe someone saw and met a need that you had or served you in some way that really just said and showed, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm with you. Uh, we, we all have, or uh, hopefully, there are some moments uh, or acts of love that you have received from other people in your life. Um, uh, but today, as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, here's what we're going to see. Uh, uh, we can take all of those experiences uh, we've had, uh, collectively or individually, uh, and all of them fail to compare, or fail to measure up to the greatest act of love that God has ever shown. And it was in the death of Jesus on the cross. That when we see Jesus' death on the cross, we see the greatest act of love ever committed. 
And so this week, as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we'll see Christ on the cross, His death and burial. Uh, And I want, in my whole hope and, and prayer, this whole week has been that we would be overwhelmed by, when we walk through this, how much God really does love you. That we would see this story, see this moment in history, when Jesus is crucified and dies, and see it as what it is, the greatest act of love that God has ever shown in Jesus' death on the cross. So let's walk through, starting in verse 33. Let's walk through this story. Let's see what happens. It says in verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried aloud with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders uh, hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled sponges with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So as we see Jesus on the cross, we'll catch up back in verse 38 and keep working through the bathroom in just a few minutes. I want to unpack some things that are taking place here. Some significant things that are happening and explain and help us understand what's really taking place here. So so in the Gospels, we see this like sixth hour, ninth hour, third hour kind of stuff play out. Uh, They used that as like their their clock times. And so the, uh, the sixth hour is noon. And so Jesus was crucified in the third hour which was 9 a.m. in the morning, is when he's actually nailed on the cross. We saw that last week. Uh, now it's 6th hour, noon, and he's still on the cross, still hanging there by his arms and legs with nails through them on the cross. And at that 6th hour, at noon, darkness was over the whole land. And, and that darkness that was over the whole of the land lasted for three full hours until, uh, until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so Jesus was literally hanging on the cross for six straight hours, which might sound like, really? Like six hours of hanging there like that? Uh, That was actually a shockingly short time for somebody to lay or to be uh, on the cross. So much that we see in a minute, we read just a few minutes ago, that Pilate's actually surprised he's already died. Because it was not uncommon for people to hang on the cross for days. Multiple days hanging on the cross, suffering, bleeding, uh, unable to breathe, eventually uh, dying from suffocation. Unable to muster the strength to rise themselves up to breathe any longer. And so Jesus hangs on the cross for six hours. Uh, And in that six hours, uh, there's darkness over the land. I don't know uh, if you're aware of this. You probably are because you're uh, breathing alive and have working eyes. It's not normally dark from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. Uh, it's, It's not a normal moment for darkness, like nighttime kind of darkness. Not like, oh, there was clouds in the sky. No, we're talking like darkness, like it's nighttime in the middle of the day, from 12 to 3. Uh, and it seems like, a, well, what's going on here? That's kind of a, a weird moment. Uh, but what's happening here is God is in the middle of Passover, which is super significant. The Jewish people are celebrating Passover when this happens. When Jesus is crucified, they're celebrating Passover, which is all a, a celebration of what happened in Egypt. Thousand years before, uh, where God did the ten plagues, Prince of Egypt, if you've seen the movie, if not, 
It's a helpful illustration or way to watch it. Um, Ten plagues we see that God uses to then liberate his people from the Egyptians. Uh, and here's an interesting part of this. Is the ninth plague, if you remember, you may not, you might need it, or might, might remember, the ninth plague is darkness over the whole land. The, the, the ninth plague of Egypt was darkness over the whole of the land. And then the tenth plague was what? The angel of death that came over the land. And, and unless you had the blood of the spotless lamb on your doorpost, your eldest son died that night. And so what we see here in the midst of the Passover celebration is, is a miracle work of God. While these people are celebrating this historical moment, showing them that foreshadowed this very moment that would happen in history. When darkness would cover the land, showing the judgment of God, and yet not you, your son die, but his son die in your place. That what we see here in the darkness over the land and the death of Jesus is God fulfilling the foreshadowing of Passover, the ninth plague and the death of the firstborn son. The, the, the darkness and the judgment of God shadows over the land and the instead of you dying on the cross or your son dying, his son dies in your place on the cross. And then as the story plays out, we see at the ninth hour, hour, so it's three o'clock in the afternoon now, six hours of hanging on the cross, Jesus screams out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, which is a, a, a it, it's the word Elohim in like the personal form. So Elohim is God in Hebrew. So it's, it's, it, it's Elohim, God, my God, Lama Sabbatani, which thankfully Mark translates for us, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's Jesus doing in that moment? Why is Jesus crying out in this moment? What is the words of Jesus communicating to us? And it's this, that in this moment in time in history, Jesus is taking the full weight of the wrath and anger of God towards your sin upon himself. He's experiencing in agony, not just the crucifixion of his death, but the full weight of the wrath of God and his anger towards your and my sin. He stands before God as a substitute with all of our sin upon Him. And what's the result of sin before God? An outpouring of His wrath and anger. That all the wrath for your and my sin was laid upon Jesus the greatest act of justice to pay for sin ever. And there's a misunderstanding by the crowd. They misunderstand, maybe mishear Jesus thinking he's saying, Eli, Eli, which is a very similar form of the word Elijah. Not Elohim, but Elijah. Uh, Eli, Eli, thinking he's calling. Because uh, in the Jewish culture, a lot of times in moments of sorrow, suffering, pain, or even death, it was not uncommon for the Jewish people to cry out for Elijah to come and comfort them in their suffering. And they assume Jesus in this moment is crying out to Elijah, saying, Elijah, come help. Elijah, come help. I'm suffering. Servant of God, Elijah. Prophet of God, come to my aid. But he's not crying out to Elijah, the prophet. He's crying out in agony because of the weight of the wrath of God upon him. 
And then we see as the story unfolds, Jesus utters a loud cry and dies and breathes his last. And there's two things that take place that are pretty significant. Um, as a result of the death of Jesus. Uh, they're not just like ethereally, ethereally important, but they're important for you and I. That, that when Jesus dies on the cross, two things happen that are significant moments. One, we see here, take place in verse 39, or 38. Look with me in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. So that's the first thing that takes place here. The veil, or curtain, it's Tor. So, so uh, in the temple, uh, like the actual Jewish temple, um, there, was, there was a series of areas in which people could go. And, and depending on who you were, you could go in to different areas. And so there's the, the outer courts where anybody could go in. Whether you were a Jew or not, whether you were a woman or a man, you could go in. Anybody could go into the outer courts. That's where Jesus goes in and cracks a whip and flips tables and runs people out, is the outer courts where anybody could go. Uh, the Gentile, the non-Jewish person, could come worship Yahweh in the outer courts. And then you had the inner courts. And there was a curtain that blocked off the inner courts. And that inner courts was where only the male Jewish members of households could enter in to worship God. So ladies, sorry, you couldn't go. Uh, Non-Jewish people, sorry, you had to worship Him outside of the temple. Which is why the whole thing is, uh, is just a massive atrocity that they've made the outer court uh, a place of of commerce, because that removed the ability for any woman or any non-Jewish person to be able to worship God. Uh, and so th there's that inner court, which is where uh, the male Jewish men could come in and worship. And there's a curtain that divides it. And then there's the holiest of places, which is where the physical presence of God, uh, his spiritual presence dwelt with the Ark of the Covenant uh, inside of another much smaller area. And there was a massive, thick, huge curtain that went around that temp that, that inner uh, holy of holies or inner place in the temple. And, and that area, the temple, like holy of holy places, where the Spirit of God dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant, only one person went in, and they only went in one time a year, and it was the high priest. And the high priest would, would go through a whole bunch of ceremonial things to then enter with blood from spotless lambs and, and there cast that blood upon the altar of God to atone for uh, the sins of the people. But only one person got to go in there. And it was the high priest, and only once a year. And if he didn't go through the ceremonial cleansings, he would die in that place. So much they would, his, his, uh, his robe had bail, bells tied to the bottom of it. And the common historical thing is that there was even a rope tied around his ankle. And so they would listen from outside of the curtain to see if the bells were still chiming, like I guess Santa's reindeer or something, um, and, and to see if he was still alive. And if he wasn't, they would drag him out by the rope because they weren't going in. They weren't going into the Holy of Holies where God himself literally dwelt. And so that's the, the, the curtains that are present. And uh, most people believe, it doesn't really tell us here which curtain uh, in the Bible was tore, whether it was the curtain that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner court, or whether it was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from anyone but the high priest. Uh, I think it was most likely, and most people agree, that it was most likely the veil that literally separated the presence of God from everyone. 
the inner holy of holies veil or curtain. And so when Jesus dies, when he breathes his last with an outcry, that curtain is torn from top to bottom. And it's not like, oh, per, like your window curtain. We're talking feet thick, massive, embroidered, thick, heavy curtain. Ripped in half. Miraculously. And what's this mean? What's the significance of this? Well, it tells us a few things. One, it tells us that God no longer dwells in that place. That God no longer dwells in the temple in Jerusalem, which doesn't exist anymore. It tells us that worship no longer happens in temples. And it also tells us this. There's no longer separation between you and God. That Jesus' death on the cross in your place made a way for you to walk into the presence of God. How did the priest, what did the priest have to do to walk into that presence? Have atoned for confessed and cleansed themselves of their sin. And so Jesus' sacrifice on the cross took care of all of your sins so that you can walk into the presence of God. Like Hebrews tells us, with boldness we draw near to the throne of grace because Christ was the once for all sacrifice that paid for your sin. So this miraculous moment in the death of Jesus, the veil is torn, opening the door for all who would come by faith in Jesus, into the presence of God. There's another thing that takes place here. In verse 39, uh, Jesus just died. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. And it says this in 39. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that this was the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, we have a, a confession and a shocking confession that we have this Roman centurion who's the actual responsible party for the execution of Jesus. He's the one in charge to make sure Jesus dies on the cross. He's got his soldiers who are doing the work, and he's the, the foreman of the execution. He's the guy in charge. And he's standing there looking at Jesus. He's hearing what the people are saying. He hears Jesus cry out. He sees all this playing out. He sees above there uh, the king of the Jews on the inscription of his charge. He sees all of this take place. And something, God himself, moving in the centurion's heart brings him to confess something. That Listen, this is super significant. No one in the entire Gospel of Mark has made this confession to Jesus yet. That Mark says from the very beginning, he wrote this gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you, if you read through it with that like aim, Mark's going, okay, uh, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. So we're reading the story, we're reading the story, okay, who's going to say it? Who, who's going to reveal that he's the Son of God? Who, is it one of the disciples? Is it, uh, they said, oh, you are the Christ, but not this. Uh, uh, they, they, is it going to be one of the Nicodemus, maybe? The, the Roman uh, or Jewish uh, council member who, who comes to Jesus in the night? Is it going to be one of the women? Mary or Mary or Mary or Salome? <laughs> Who's it going to be who makes this declaration and confession that Jesus is the Son of God? Who's it going to be? And, and, and shockingly, the first person to declare that Jesus was the Son of God was the man directly responsible for his death. 
And he was a Roman, a Gentile, not a Jew, not raised in the Jewish state, likely, likely positioned there from some other part of the Roman Empire. But this Roman centurion, directly responsible for the death of Jesus, was the first person to make a public confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Which echoes these truths. He was rejected by those with whom he came to save. The whole crowd around, they don't confess Jesus as the Son of God. But the Roman Gentile does. The first confession after the death of Jesus is a shocking confession. And then the story continues. In verse 40, there was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger of, and of Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered, which means literally served Jesus, taking care of his needs. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, it's Friday, and that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate asking for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The rest of these verses echo for us this truth. Uh, Jesus, our King, was dead. That he died. That he died. He didn't kind of sort of die. He didn't suffer a lot and pass out. He died. He died on the cross. You see, the Romans were great at killing people. Masters of it. And they dealt with it all the time. And there's six people who are witnesses to the death of Jesus. you got Mary, Mary, Salome. you got Pilate. you got Joseph. And you got the centurion. Six people who witness and confirm that Jesus has died. And Joseph, uh, a member of the council referring to the Sanhedrin, the people who are responsible for his trial, showing us that not all of those guys were on board with the crucifixion of Jesus, or at least maybe God moved in Joseph's heart in seeing the crucifixion of Jesus, to courageously go to Pilate and ask for something that no one would ask for. See, the Romans disgraced the bodies of criminals who were crucified. Oftentimes they would suffer and die for days, and they would literally leave them hanging there to just rot. As a symbol and sign of, you act like this, this is what happens to you. 
And when they would pull them off, they would throw them into the trash pile, their corpse, their bodies. They wouldn't get proper burials. They would throw them into, uh, into the trash pile. Gehenna is what it's called. We're just constant burning of trash that was taking place outside of the city. And they would throw the dead corpse of criminals who were crucified into that. But Joseph goes and asks Pilate. It takes a lot of courage because the Romans rarely, if ever, did this. And says, can we give him a proper burial? And out of his own pocket, pays for the, uh, pays for the burial clothes. And we don't know, uh, I think the other Gospels echo or lean in this direction, uh, but likely the tomb which he was buried was a tomb prepared for Joseph that no one had ever been in. They were recycled tombs. You put somebody in there, they died, they decayed. They took their bodies or bones out, put them in a box that was kind of like your family's burial box kind of thing, and then the tomb was reused for somebody else. This tomb's never been used. And a stone is rolled across the door and guards are placed outside. We know that from the other Gospels. But Jesus, the King, is dead. What was accomplished in the death of Jesus? What was accomplished in the death of Jesus? I'll make the argument for you this evening or morning that the greatest single act of love ever committed happened at the death of Jesus on the cross. You see, in Jesus' death, the full weight and wrath of God was satisfied. Isaiah 53 tells us this. This was a long time before Jesus died. Prophesying about Jesus' death. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says this. And He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned away, everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity, the offense, the sin of us all. That all of your sin is laid upon Jesus and the full weight and wrath of God was satisfied in His crucifixion in your place. You see, Jesus took your place, not only in taking the full weight and wrath of God, but also the curse of sin and death. Jesus died in your place. In Genesis 2, it echoes this. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. And Romans 6, 23, it'll be up on the screen, echoes this for us. The wages or the payment, the cost of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus took the death, the full weight of wrath of God, and the death that you and I deserve. And in that moment, God was doing for Himself all that was necessary to atone and pay for your sins. He provided the sacrifice for Himself. Thinking, if you're familiar, of Abraham on the mountain with Isaac, his son. And Abraham's words when Isaac says, Dad, we have everything except for the sacrifice. And what does Abraham say to his son? The Lord will provide the sacrifice for Himself. And here on the cross... 
When Jesus died, what is God doing? Providing the sacrifice for Himself to, prov- to take the full weight of wrath of God for you. God was not only pouring out His wrath on Jesus, but He was pouring out His love on you. Pouring out His love on you. Romans 5, 6-9 through 9 says it this way. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in Christ's death at the cross, God was showing His love for you. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more we shall be saved by Him, Jesus, from the wrath of God. That God was showing, pouring out His love for sinners like you and me in the cross of Jesus. You're probably familiar with at least this first verse. In John 3, 16 through 18, God says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son... Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Hear that in the personal, even though it's not, it's it's across the board. God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn you. He sent Jesus into the world that you might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, God loved you and me, loved us so much that He pours out His love by giving us His Son in our place. The greatest act of love ever shown is that God would give His Son on a cross in your place. And 1 John 4, 10 says it this way, In this is love, not that we have loved God, Love is not known by your love for God. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a fancy, not fancy, it's a big word that means sacrifice in your place. That at the cross of Jesus, God's love was on display in the greatest way possible that Jesus became your sacrifice, became your sacrifice. Take your place on the cross. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. The greatest act of love ever shown or done by God is not providing for your needs or solving your problems or showing up when you need Him most. It's the death of Jesus on the cross in your place. That God was pouring out His love on you in the crucifixion of Jesus in your place. 
And in the same very moment, as the veil is torn, he welcomes all who believe to come and receive that overflow of his love and eternal life. And so my encouragement is this. What do we do with this? If the greatest act of love ever committed is God crucifying, or Jesus dying, him giving his son, Jesus dying on the cross in your place, what do we do with this? Well, the first is this. You believe the gospel. You believe that Jesus died in your place. That he took your sin and the full weight of the wrath of God in your place so that you could stand forgiven, justified, righteous as a son or daughter of God. We believe the gospel and are saved and we have the overflow and outpour of God's love because Jesus took his wrath. Romans 10, 9 says it this way. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God for your sin. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So my encouragement to you today is this. If you have not believed the gospel, if you have not put your faith and trust in the death of Jesus in your place to pay the punishment for your sins that you would today. That today you would believe that Jesus died in your place, taking the full weight of the wrath of God in your place so that God would overflow and pour out his love on you as son or daughter. Confess him as Lord. Believe and be saved. If you have believed the gospel, here's my hope and prayer for you is that you would be overwhelmed by the gospel. That today, in this moment, that you would be overwhelmed by the love of God for you. That He would do this for you. That God would give His only Son as an act of love. That Jesus would willingly go to the cross as an act of love in your place. At the cross, we truly see the depths of God's love for us. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to give either of my sons as a sacrifice for you. Sorry. I'm not. Um, but God did for you. When we reflect on the cross, when we reflect on, on what Jesus did in taking your place on the cross, it should overwhelm our hearts with God's love. It should overwhelm us with how merciful and gracious He is towards us. Because here's the deal. You and I have done absolutely nothing but offend God. Rebel against God. Reject God. And even though that's true, He gave His Son to die in your place. And it wasn't because of the future things that you would do for God that motivated Him to love you enough to die in your place. It was an overflow of His pure, perfect, abundant, holy love alone. So you and I deserve to suffer the full weight and wrath of God. Jesus didn't. He never sinned, never suffered, or never deserved, never offended, never rebelled, never rejected, never disobeyed. 
He deserved the reward of eternal life. And you and I deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus takes the wrath of God on the cross so that you might have the overflowing love of God. And it was motivated by love. It was motivated by love. No greater one is anyone, love does anyone have than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus' very next words to his disciples, and you are my friends. First John 3.16, not John 3.16, says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. By this we know the love of God, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. First John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. See, the work of a Christian is not to earn the love of God, but to daily wake up each morning and ask God in His grace that you would be filled with and overwhelmed by the love of God for you. Uh, the, the pursuit of God in your personal devotion, in, in your Bible reading, in your times of prayer, in your, your personal devotion, the pursuit of God is that you would be overwhelmed by His love for you each and every day when you open up His Word and see His holiness and your wretchedness, yet He still loved you enough to die in your place. The work of your life as a Christian, is that you would echo to one another that God has an overwhelming love for you so much that He would give His Son. So our aim as Christians who've put our faith and trust in Jesus' death on the cross in our place is that we would look to the gospel every single day and be overwhelmed by God's love for us. And in that very moment, that's when our lives begin to change. When we look to the gospel and we see the love of God poured out on the cross of Jesus is when we begin to hate our sin that put Him there in the first place. The solution to ongoing struggle with sin in your life is not to examine yourself more and try to figure out methods to discipline yourself. No, it's to gaze at the love of God that He would give His one and only Son to take the punishment of your sin in your place and let that love overflow your heart so much that you want nothing to do with your sin and just to return and worship a love for a God who would be so kind and gracious to you. To look to the gospel... And what God has done for you in the cross of Jesus is how we're formed more into the image of Him. This is what 1 John 3 says. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Which means if, if we're sinning, what do we need to do? Abide in Jesus. To lean into and gaze at and be marveled at and overwhelmed by His love for you. And then we run away from our sin. When our souls are unhealthy and withered and don't look like luscious trees but look like tumbleweeds, when we're malnourished, the solution is not the next cool book, trying harder, 
pulling back from other people or the gathering. No, the solution is that our hearts would be overwhelmed by the love of God and the cross of Christ and it would draw us toward Him each day. That we would draw towards our God who has nothing but overwhelming love for us in private worship, in community, and in the gathering. In our relationships, the solution to your marriage, the solution to the conflicts in your friendships is not, oh, those people don't love me well. It's that you need to see the love of God. What is, oh, we've read these verses. Love doesn't come from just trying harder. It comes from seeing the love that God has for you. And then we're able to love one another. The solution to the problems we face in relationships is that we turn our eyes to see the love that God has for us. Paul himself says, the chief of sinners. And that that love would invade and overflow in our hearts to love others. Wow. We love because we have been loved. Not to be loved. When it comes to our provision... The solution to our need and financial crisis is that we look at what our God has already provided. We read this when we were praying earlier. In Romans 8, it says, What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all how will He not also graciously give us all things? Where do we turn to for the faith to, need, faith to trust God for His provision? His greatest provision of all. Christ in your place on the cross. And there our hearts are overwhelmed by His love and we walk in trust and faith in His provision. The aim of your life, Christian, you don't outgrow, outmature, your need and understanding of what the cross of Jesus implies or is for you. You don't get so mature as a Christian that you're like, oh, I moved on to better and bigger things than Jesus' death on the cross. No, no. We daily come before our good God gazing at the cross of Jesus and see the greatest act of love ever done for you. And in that moment, our hearts are overwhelmed with love. And when our hearts are overwhelmed by the love of God, they're moved to do what? Worship. Our God. Worship Him in obedience. Worship Him in surrender. Worship Him in giving. Worship Him in singing. Worship Him in loving our neighbor as ourself. The solution to a love problem where you don't love God is not just trying harder but seeing and gazing at, marveling over, and being overwhelmed by how much He has loved you. And when we feel and experience the overwhelming love of God, we are moved towards our good God in love. See, the greatest act of love ever committed in the world, in history, was the cross of Jesus Christ. Out of an overflow of God's Perfect love He gave us, His only Son, to 
to atone for, pay for, and take upon himself the full weight of wrath, the wrath of God. That instead of God the Father pouring out his wrath on you, he poured it out on Jesus. That Jesus, the Son, willingly took your sin upon himself. Willingly took the full weight of the wrath of God upon himself and was crucified, cursed, and dead in your place. In this single act of love in history, rest your eternal salvation. And it's what we look back to every single day. It's what we look to in the moments when we don't hunger for God. It's what we look to in the moments when we've failed to obey our God. It's what we look to in the moments when we can't seem to muster up the strength to love and serve one another. That's what we look to in the moments when we are overwhelmed by the chaos and anxiety of the world. It's what we look to in financial provision. It's what we look to each day as we open up His Word. That God in His kindness and grace would overwhelm our hearts with how much He has loved us. So much that He would give His Son and He would willingly take your place on the cross. And that's our hope. And we would never get tired of gazing at the love of God on display in the cross of Jesus.